Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to another edition of the 90s Podcast, hosted by Kevin Thompson, RICP, CFP of Rethink Wealth. I'm excited to join you this week. As always, I'm excited that we've had such a good turnout in regards to all of our uh, previous podcasts that we've had, multiple views. We appreciate the, the new subscribers, the new listeners, and also segue your frequently asked questions. Like I mentioned to you last week, we are going to do a podcast over your frequently asked questions, and that's what we're going to do today. And today, I bought none other than the former institutional manager, the former uh, money manager that's been in this business for over 20, 25 years, uh, James McGlynn, the, the founder of Next Quarter Century, James McGlynn, the Certified Financial Analyst, CFA of Next Quarter Century. James, how are you doing today, kind sir? Kevin, I'm doing well, but probably not as well as you. <laughs> not as well as me because I'm always excited to do my podcast and give out great information. And like I mentioned today, FAQs, frequently asked questions. And there's a lot of advisors out there. You hear them. I'm not going to name any names, but they have their own shows. They read, they write books. They do all these different things, and they give you some very valuable information. They talk about types of insurances. They talk about emergency funds. They talk about how you should invest your money. And that's what we're going to do today is answer some of your frequently asked questions that we've been seeing, that we've been receiving from you. So one question that I'm going to uh, address is, an emergency fund. It's the simplest, uh, most, I guess one of the most basic beginning stages of financial planning. So James, I'm going to ask James, Mr. McGlynn this because James is our resident uh, professional in regards to, to retirement planning. James, talk to us about emergency funds and how much should someone have inside of an emergency fund? Well, Kevin, I think it's an excellent question and it matters to every age group of investor from the from the beginning investor to the family investor to the one on the verge of retirement. And I think the standard answer you hear is you should have three to six months salary saved up in case of an emergency. And, you know, the classic emergency we've got now is the pandemic. You know, who, who knew that while well, you're going to be unemployed for two or three months and maybe you get unemployment, maybe you don't. Uh, but if you had that money in the bank, you wouldn't have to be in such dire straits uh, or have to use credit card debt. So I think the three to six months before it was three months. Now people think, well, maybe they want to be a little more conservative. We have the six months of their essential expenses saved. Uh, that's for the beginning level. And again, and later for retirement, an emergency fund when you're not working might be one to two years of uh, essential earnings uh, in an in account. And so not that you're not working, but so you don't have to sell stocks. So at the beginning stage, three to six months, and then in retirement, one to two years, or maybe even three years cash, if you can afford that, have that not invested. Kevin, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that we all go back to 2000, 2000, uh, sorry, 2008, 2009. Before then, it was everybody would say, oh, it's three months of of, of of an emergency fund, three months of just liquidity, that's all you need. And after 2008, 2009, it went 
the three to six months. I think after this current situation, it's going to go up to six months to nine months. I think the more you have, the better. Now, there's also opportunity cost in it regards because you, the money that's sitting in your savings account, well, it's not necessarily being invested in higher rates of returns and things like that. That is okay. In some instances, especially like today's environment, cash is king. So having that money sitting inside that savings account so you can access it when you need it is crucial. So I am, I'm on the camp of six to nine months, maybe even a year's month of liquidity. I know our philosophy here at Rethink Wealth and Not Indies Capital Group is having a, a minimum of not, a, a minimum of 12 months of liquidity available for you. Because what does that do? Well, it decreases your insurance costs, whether it be disability insurances. Maybe we can move our disability premiums or sorry, our disability, uh, disability elimination periods from, say, a uh, 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 nine, uh, 90 days to 100, 180 days or or something like that. We can lower our costs there. Maybe we can lower our auto insurance costs. Maybe we can go from a $500 deductible to a $1,000 deductible. So it's a way for us to do some kind of a self-insurance uh, to a degree, the more money we have in savings. So I do really believe that the more money we have from an emergency stand standpoint gives us a little bit more uh, of flexibility in regards to saving money on the other side of the fence. So and go ahead. Kevin, you mentioned the Having the emergency fund, not only is it great to, to pay your bills, but as far as insurance costs, the, the ability to have higher deductibles, you know, it, it, it continues to pay off down the road. And I've got an interesting story. I was talking to my girlfriend uh, just yesterday. It was about health savings accounts. And someone she works with said, what's a health savings account? And, you know, because my girlfriend has been educated by me on health savings accounts for the past few years, she said, oh, the health savings account, I have a higher deductible and I've got a few thousand dollars in this in this account for any kind of health bills that's uh, tax deductible. And if, if, if a $2,000 health bill hit her, she's already got that money in her health savings account. Or someone else who has no emergency fund, has no health savings account, they'd have to put it on a credit card and be paying 20% interest, all sorts of bad things. So emergency fund is not just Three, three to six months or nine months cash sitting in in a in a in, in the mattress doing nothing. It, it can be provide savings for for healthcare costs and uh, various other things. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, James, for that. So we discussed emergency funds. That's one of the the top items on a frequently asked question. Like, how much should I actually have in my emergency fund? So again, six to nine months, three to six months, just having money in your emergency fund is important because there's a statistic that just came out. 58% of America uh, has less than $1,000 inside of a savings account. I'm going to say that, that again. Be, was that before the uh, pandemic began or after? I don't know whether it was before or after, but it was. It says 58% of, of, of Americans have less than $1,000 in a savings account. That means that they have very, very limited uh, flexibility in regards to their emergency fund. So it's always important to put money money aside for the what ifs. Now, another question which we always get, we always get is about debt. Now, James doesn't deal with a lot of clients with a lot of debt. A lot of his clients are are, are in their at or near retirement as, as, as much of mine are as well. But in regards to debt, Good debt versus bad debt. Our philosophy here at, at Rethink Wealth, Not Ease Capital, is that good debt represents things that 
ultimately are we say 5% or less. And when we say 5% from an interest rate, we're saying that if we can invest these dollars elsewhere and get a higher rate of return somewhere else over a longer period of time, then we know that the debt that we're, we're basically servicing is good debt. What I mean by that is if I have a mortgage at 3%, I know that's good debt because I can invest my dollars in other avenues and other areas and get a five, six, 7% return over a longer period of time. So if, if it's a 30 year mortgage and I'm getting, I have a 3% loan there, well, I can, I'm putting monies aside and getting seven or 8% on the outside of that. That's considered good debt. James, what, what say you on this matter? I would say, you know, coming at it from the same angle as far as uh, mortgage debt, I find it interesting. There's so many people that talk about reverse mortgages. So many people want to have their mortgage paid off. And I, similar to you, recently refinanced the mortgage at around 3% interest rates. And someone could pay off their mortgage. And that's great to have a house that's paid off. But what if they need that $100,000 or so? From their mortgage, are they going to have to now get a reverse mortgage and pay higher rates? Or I thought it was better not to pay off the mortgage and have that money available. That could be your emergency fund money. Instead of paying off a mortgage, I'd rather have the money in a bank instead of paying off the mortgage and be a liquid. So to me, there's the mortgage is a, is a classic case. I think you might have some more uh, occasion to deal with uh, clients with student loan debt. But some, some people, no debt really is good, but if you're using that student loan debt to finance a, a career, a, a higher paying career, maybe it is good debt. I'm not going to get into the, because there's a fight in, in our industry about uh, debt, all debt's bad. I mean, I'm sure you've heard it. I'm sure you heard the, the pundits out there that say all debt is bad. Well, not a lot of us can go out there and, and put $300,000 on, on a home today and, and, and have that home uh, uh, just fully paid off. A lot of, I'll say 99.9% .9 of America cannot possibly do that today. So there's there's a reason why there's debt in, in our in our society. And there's a reason why there's there's banks that are lenders in the society because it allows us to do things that we, first, we ultimately couldn't do otherwise. So there is such thing as good debt. Like, and then just to put a, put a, a button on this is that Anything under 5%, which is a philosophy here at Rethink Wealth and, and, and 980s Capital, is that we believe that anything under 5% is considered good debt. Or if you can outpace that in other avenues, other areas, it's considered good debt. A bad debt? Let me tell you right now. When a credit card company lets you, lets you uh, lend you some money and they say, hey, in three months after that 0% interest is done, it's 29.99%. That's bad debt. Now, the good debt's the 0% over the first three months. The bad debt is anything after that three months. So uh, that's, that's, what we, that's what we consider good and bad debt. James, you have anything else to add on that? Uh, yeah, fortunately, you know, the credit card debt, the, the people who are having to pay 10%, 20% on that, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that, the, that they've actually analyzed how much is this going to cost them over the long term especially when we're seeing current interest rates today. I just checked 10-year treasuries under 1%. So you can get safe returns for 10 years for under 1%, but you're paying 25% or 20% or even 10%. Uh, there's, there's some margin for the credit card companies to be made there.
And that's a perfect segue. And I love I love using that word, by the way, segue. It's a great word. It's a perfect segue because James talked about high interest credit card debts. And we're going to talk about, we're going to end the show talking about credit scores. Credit scores. Now, a lot of people don't necessarily know, especially the people that are just now starting their lives together, especially people in their 20s. You know, what is my credit score? What does it mean? Why is it important? We're not going to get involved in that too much, but we're going to talk about credit scores and how you can use the system to your advantage. So first of all, there's three different credit agencies, Equifax, TransUnion, and what's the other one, James? Experian. Experian. And we all know what happened with Equifax and Experian. There was a couple of hacks. And Right now, you have the ability, and especially according to the uh, the Fair Credit, is it the Fair Credit Act of, uh, I think it was a, a, a early- two- Consumer Protection Act. Consumer Protection Act, exactly. That's why I have James here to, to correct me. The Consumer Protection Act, you have the ability to get a free credit report from each one of those agencies. Now, here's the trick. You don't go in and get, say, TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian the same month. What you do, and this is free advice, by the way, you go in your first month, the first after your first month, you get your TransUnion, maybe three or four months later, you go into the Equifax, you get theirs, maybe four or five months later, you go get your Experian. That allows you to get your three free credit reports for the year without having to sign up for a publication or sign up for some kind of subscription service. So that's how you get that done. Go and get your credit scores because it's very important from a lending perspective. You don't want to go out, go out and say, you know what, I want to apply to get some, get this new vehicle. And especially we know that right now that vehicles are being almost given away with zero percent interest loans. But you don't want to go out and get your, go out there and say, hey, I want to apply for something. And then next thing you know, oh well, you don't have the credit to do it. So please always look at what your credit scores are doing. And by the way, Credit Karma, it's it's a it's a fantastic fantastic app but don't rely on that credit score please it's not it's, it's not real it's 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 a roundabout so please don't go expecting that your credit karma report is absolutely your credit score because it's not james although credit karma will monitor some of your credit hits and tell you what they are because I've, I've they've notified me of the past of some medical bills that i thought i'd paid or they weren't sent to my address so credit karma's the cost of it is free. So if you don't mind having your information on the internet, Credit Karma is good uh, for that. As you mentioned, every four months, you can go to one of the three different agencies and see what your credit report is. Although back in the, in the olden days, no one knew where they could find their credit scores and they'd have to pay a lot of money for it. Now we can get it free. Or I know at Chase Bank, my credit cards, they're all saying, hey, click here, we'll tell you your credit score every month. So it's really not difficult to, to get one of these three scores uh, on a regular basis. Absolutely. So if you have any questions on that, you can always contact who? Your financial advisor. Let them help you. Let them build a better credit score for you. I was just, I have clients, I'm helping them with their credit scores. I have clients, I'm helping them with their, their debts. I have clients, I'm helping them with their emergency funds. And to do all of these things, it comes back, and this is the last thing we're going to talk about. We're going to bring this back. When we talk about investing, when we talk about emergency funds and all these different things, it comes around one thing, savings rate. Savings rate. James, what does it mean 
when we talk about savings rate? Well, I'm assuming you're saying if you have a certain amount of income, are you able to save a certain percent of that gross income, whether it's in retirement or savings account or brokerage account? And I was just listening to a call uh, two days ago where we were saying, well, we think 15% of gross is a good number. If you can get higher, it's good. Because you also know that although we love to get investment returns, the number one factor in how much you're able to save longer term is how much you save percentage-wise, not the rate of return as much. James just mentioned it. It's not about rates of return. It's about savings rate. If you can save 15 to 20% of your gross income annually, and I'm going to use a round number here, $100,000 a year, you're saving $20,000 a year. You're going to outpace that individual that saves 6% a year. That's getting 10% a year. So let me say this again. It's about savings rate, not about rates of return. However, rates of return are important. The individual who has a higher savings rate can take less risk. The person that has a higher savings rate can ultimately have more dollars to do something with when they get to retirement. They don't have to do uh, all of the other things that the individual that has a lower savings rate has to do later in life. One thing that we've noticed when we have these conversations Our society is built around spending. The design is, hey, you save 6% and the other 14 or 15% that the other guy is saving, you can go ahead and spend that because I'm such a good manager of your money. I'm going to make up the difference in regards to rates of return. You go have a good time right now. Don't worry about the 20 to 25 year old, uh, older you, which now you're 40, 45, 50 years old. Don't worry about that person because they're going to have plenty of money because I'm going to do such a great job. Well, that's not always the case because we know that rates of return are very, very volatile and we not necessarily we don't necessarily get that six or seven percent year after year after year. The Dow Bar study basically states that the average investor does roughly around two percent while the market does around five percent. So there's a three percent alpha out, out or, or basically outperformance based on that. So we know the average investor very rarely gets market returns. We want to make sure that the that, that people know that to outpace anything in the market, the market that can give you, have a higher savings rate, and you can do you can rely less on rates of return. James, what say you? I think it's interesting. Also, take a round number. If someone's earning a hundred thousand, if they're able to save the twenty thousand and live on the eighty thousand, when they retire, they're used to living on eighty thousand, and when they stop having to save. They'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Or someone at a hundred thousand who's not saving anything and spent it all when they retire, not only will they have less savings, but they're used to spending a hundred thousand. They're gonna have to cut back twenty percent of their normal spending to be on par with the the guy who's been saving all that time. So when people say, Well, in retirement you need to have, you know, earn as much money as you did before, it's just people who are saving a lot of money, they're gonna say, Wow, I I don't have to save anymore. And that was a big percentage of what I was spending. So I'm fine. That's a great question. You said, what? That's a, well, that's another question. We have, a, we have a couple more minutes here. So do you actually have to have as much money in retirement then you, for, from an income perspective as you, as you had prior to retirement? I mean, most people really feel like, you know, I'm going to get to retirement. Let's just use a round number, $100,000 a year. And I'm, I'm not going to, to spend as much money. Uh, when I get there. 
So what we find, and, and I'll have James kind of ex- uh, expand on this as well. What we find is that after you take off your mortgage payments, after you take off your savings, after you take off certain taxes that you're no longer paying, uh, employment taxes that you're no longer paying, 70 to 75% of your gross income is basically what you're going to need, right? But we also know that there's things that happen, like inflation. We also know that there's things that, that, that happen in regards to, well, your first five to 10 years in retirement, what do they call that, James? Well, the go-go years. They call it the go-go years. And what do you do during the go-go years, James? We take a cruise on the Diamond Princess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you want to do that right now, but yeah, you take cruises, you take vacations, you start to do a lot more. So you spend more money earlier in retirement than you do later in retirement. And we know what happens later in retirement, right? We know that uh, people spend money, a lot of money, but not in the ways that they want to spend it. I, I have clients right now that are in that are in these homes and we're spending $7,500 a month, $8,000 a month for, for these assisted living facilities. And, it's, and, and, and it is true. There's a lot of money that goes out there, but, but, but comparatively speaking to what you were current, you were spending earlier in retirement, it pales in comparison. James. Well, like I said, the, uh, for the first five years, people are doing their international traveling and then they cut back and then they find later 15 years down the road, they're not spending nearly what they used to, unless they call it the retirement smile at the end, you might have huge long-term care expenses and then that number goes up, but that's the only thing you're spending on is long-term care. Long-term care, which is very important. James, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Today we discussed uh, emergency funds, which is a frequently asked question. How much should I have in my emergency fund? We discussed what is a good debt. We just, we talked about credit scores and we also talked about savings rate. Is there anything else you would like to add for this uh, podcast? I think that should cover it, Kevin. Well, James, CFA, RICP of next quarter century. Thank you for joining the Nine Innings podcast. Thank you for jo- coming and, and getting a little insight to our clients and our and our listeners to the Nine Innings podcast. And we greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their financial representatives are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Rethink Wealth, and opinions stated are their own. Kevin Thompson, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, OSJ 3040, Post Oak Boulevard, Suite 1150, Houston, Texas, 77056-281-220-2700. Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities, member FEMRA SIPC, Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Rethink Wealth is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Submission number 2020-102741, expiration 6-2022. External sites and organizations provided for your convenience in locating related information and services. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees expressly disclaim any responsibility for and do not maintain, control, recommend, or endorse third-party sites, organizations, products, or services and make no representation as to the completeness, suitability, or quality thereof.